Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host... Liel Zahaviasa. How you doing, Liel? I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. I think you can hear my cold is finally starting to leave my voice a little, which yes, what can you do? Yeah, and uh, today's topic is... Gush Katif Day in the Israeli education system and the general topic of Gush Katif and leaving Gush Katif. And for that, we have a special guest. Leah, would you please introduce him? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so today uh, we have a special guest named Yoav Yaron. He was born and raised in the Ved Kalim in Gush Katif. After the uprooting of the Jewish communities in 2005, he moved to Nitzan. He served as an assistant commander in the IDF. He has, he has since completed his BA in Comparative Literature and Jewish Studies and his MA in American Jewish Studies in the Ruderman Program. Today, he works for Jaffe at this Shechim unit and lives in Jerusalem. Hi, Yoav. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Welcome. And you just discovered before we started recording that for you guys, it's a reunion a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a little it's... bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Liel knows like every Jewish educator under 40, and I know like every Jewish educator <laughs> over 50. So we well, have this middle gap. <laughs> yeah. So we need to find someone who knows the other gap. That's it. We need a third person who can, who can <laughs> fix the uh, difference there. So you have, I honestly, as a, I, maybe it's just because I'm an Oleh, but I, I wasn't aware that there was this institution in Israeli education of Gush Katif Day where, where, where it's commemorated and it's taught about. What, what is this? In, what is this? What schools do it? Why don't we know more about it? Why isn't it more of a national thing rather than just an educational thing? Okay. Uh, to answer that, I need to go back a little bit. Great. Um, after the disengagement, um, a committee basically of Gush Katif residents was established in order to help the communities resettle and find jobs, find houses, like re basically rebuild the communities after the destruction of our old homes. It's an um, enormous transition. It's basically yeah. like moving, it's like restarting your, it's like making alias. I mean, it's not, but it's like restarting your In life. In many aspects, there is like similar similarities to Olim and Bushkin's yeah. residents. Um, so they started working on rebuilding the communities. And as once the communities start settling and being back to what they used to be, they start thinking, how can we go back? How can we memorate what needs to be memorated? And not only the destruction, because that's a tiny chapter, but a full um, Yeshivut movement, the settlement movement that was existed there. So they established the Gush Katif Heritage Center that's located mm -hmm. in Nitsan, and they pushed to a law um, in the Israeli government to memorate Gush Katif. And therefore, the Gush Katif Heritage Center is under the prime minister's office, similar to Begin Heritage Center. Leading that, they could um, push it into um, the school system as, as an idea that it's been welcome and there is budget for it to commemorate and celebrate it in, in the school systems. Most schools that are actually celebrating that are orthodox. I think it's mostly because they are more related to the story, um, politically wise and culturally wise. But why culturally? Year, I understand politically that I understand that perhaps uh, 
educators who align and and I think educators should decide if a topic is important for their students, regardless of their particular personal political ideology. But that's not so much the case in the Israeli school system, I fear, as probably yeah. in many countries. And I understand why people, educators of a more right-wing ideology personally, would want to reflect on the loss of Gush Katif more. But, 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 but why culturally? Why do they culturally, do you think they... They so if you see yourself belonging to, let's say, the left wing, mm -hmm. you still, it's too close to the date. It's too close to the event. It, a lot of people feel unwelcome to open it up, um, to criticize that, to judge it, to, to even think about it or speak about it. So culturally, they don't want to touch the subject at all. It's not only the political aspect, it's everything in their life. They won't touch the idea, like let's say um, the disengagement from Yamit, that yes. was. I, I want you. Most of our listeners don't remember the disengagement from Yamit. I wasn't and born when, yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember it. I mean, I'm I'm an old man, so I I remember watching it on American television on the news, and the heartbreaking scenes of it when Israel gave the Sinai to Egypt, and those Jewish communities had to be uprooted, and Yamit in particular was the one that got broadcast. Yeah, and but I, the difference is. That yeah. the prime minister was elected with this agenda. Right. The people who voted for for um, the prime minister knew he's gonna uproot Yamid. It's gonna be the, the the process of a peace. Well, not in seventy seven when he was first elected, right? Yeah, that's why they they went to an, an next elect, election in order to actually proceed with that. Right. Right. Um. So with Yamid, we have a lot of time now. Nowadays, no one, I think, actually deal with Yamid's story. But the idea is so far away that people are like open to, to deal with it, to do sessions about it, to teach, to educate, to actually do something about it. When we're talking about, about Yamit? 16 years, yes, Yamit. Yamit oh. was in 82. Yeah. We're talking about in 2005, we're still right. really close to the date. That's why people feel, I don't know, they, they don't really want to deal with that yet. Hmm. So the school system, open the, the, the option to do it because it's not a political story anymore. It's an Israeli story. Yeah. And that's what I'm, I, as an educator, trying to emphasize. It's not about right or wrong. It's about that's what happened. I can share my own experience and yeah. let's move on. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't understand the idea as somebody who teaches contemporary issues of saying something is, it is true that it will take us time to be more reflective and get more perspective, but certainly educators have to communicate with students about current events issues as best they can. And here, I think you have, whatever your political ideology, if your unit was on not only Gush Katif, but also Yami, and what it means for Israel to leave territory, and what's the same about it, and what's very different about it, that Yami was part of a peace treaty and Gush Katif was in the absence of any peace. It was in the abandonment of a peace process. I, I, I think there's so much to compare and contrast of those two that it makes a very rich educational unit, no? I totally agree. Um, my goal, my personal goal as an educator and as a representative of the Gush Katif Heritage Center is to open the story to as mm -hmm. many people who want to, to actually deal with it. If... Mm -hmm. Let's say, let's say a gap year program. They want yeah. to deal with Israeli politics. I feel like this story is crucial for understanding what Israeli politics in the real life is. 
Because yeah. what happened in, in society was the meaning of believing in political agenda and actually pushing it to, to come to reality. If it's for the uprooting or against the uprooting, it doesn't matter. But the Israelis are very actively politically. So mm-hmm. that's a great story to actually reference. Well, I, I think that once you, and, and I'm going to ask you a little to talk more about that, the community you grew up in, but I, I think that for the people who were against it, and in retrospect, see it as, as a huge mistake, I think for them, they, there is a political reason to tell the, the story of what life was like there. While as those who were for the uprooting, for... And I, and I and I and and here's where I think it's educationally important to bring it up. They were for the uprooting for very patriotic Zionist reasons, but they they may not want to discuss the story because it it, it shows the price was very very heavy and continues to be very very heavy. And I always think that's a that's a dangerous way to educate. When when again, as I think that po- the, the the conversation has to be broad and well rounded. And it has to talk about costs either way. And I, I agree with you, basically, is what I'm saying. I think it has to be a very open conversation. I have to say, from my experience, uh, mostly from um, studying at Hebrew University, I had debates. I, had, I, I have a friend that um, was grew up in a kibbutz around, uh, around Aza. Um, mm-hmm. And her family, her community, was pro-uprooting Gush Katif. And we mm-hmm. had a conversation about it. She was not afraid of seeing the price because mm-hmm. there's always a price. And right. I think as, as long as both, both sides willing to discuss um, the prices, we can actually right. move along. Right. That's exactly and, and, right. and that's that's exactly what happened with my friend. And, and I love it. I love those this conversation. Even if you like mm-hmm. someone I work with was an officer in uprooting, fine. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't dislike him because of that. I want to understand right. his agenda. At, at the end of it, it wasn't against me. It wasn't against right. us. It was pro a bigger idea. Both Is sides are Zionists. Part yeah. of the educational days, like the we're talking about the the Yom Gush Katif, right? The Gush Katif day in the Israeli educational system. So is 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 that idea of opening up the conversation and and mm. having that mifgash or that meeting between the two ideas or between the two perspectives is that part of the agenda for that day i don't think so i think that the agenda is to memorate mm. and then it gives the school you as as a teacher you as an educator decide what you want to memorate you want to memorate the community you want to memorate the the political ac- activism you what do you want to memorate when i've been asked to give a session to a school, I can give them what I think, but if they want something specific, they need to tell me and I, I can direct the session accordingly. And, and so it really depends on what you want as an educator. Well, I, I really think, although it's kind of early in the episode, we have another 20 minutes or so, I, I do think that, that you, you've hit the nail on the head of what I think is the key thing, is that both sides have to recognize and there are obviously a lot of ambivalence and people who look at things both ways, but people who, even people who feel strongly one side or the other have to recognize the positive intention of each side. And democracy depends on recognizing that both sides believe firmly, even on a visceral, painful issue like this, 
that they're right. And, and I, I fear that win some, lose some attitude in democracy isn't growing. And, and here, Gush Katif is such a good topic for that, for talking about things that really are, are painful, but people honestly disagree, and that honest disagreement has to be respected. Yeah, um, I had the privilege of leading a session with Abonim Olami, um, a gap program of the Abonim Drawer Movement mm-hmm. um, here in Jerusalem. Um, and that was fascinating. Obviously, the Abonim Olami are not typically right-wing um, politically. Mm-hmm. And the conversation with the student, with the participant, was, for me, refreshing. They ask about the Palestinian aspect. They ask about the establishment of, of those movements. It, it was like such a, a, a new thing for me. It wasn't mm-hmm. the same people that they used to walk and used to give um, session to. Different agenda. And that brings a new conversation. And that's yeah. actually what, what I think I want to do. I want to have conversation. I don't want to preach the choir. Right. Well, it's such a, it's so healthy, and then and everyone grows from that. Everyone grows from that. So, so tell us about. I mean, I realize this is a, probably a little bit. You, you've done this probably a million times, but talk about what it was like to grow up there, and and just give us some insight into what life was like there before the disengagement. Okay, so I grew up in Nevet Kalim, basically the biggest yeshuv, the biggest uh, community in Gush Katif. They had we had twenty one different yeshuvim, different communities. Um, Nevet Kalim had around five hundred families. The biggest one. Um, living there was fantastic. Like even when the terrorists started, like the second intifada, it doesn't really affect us too much. We still, I used to take hitchhikes to the beach. I used to take hitchhikes to different communities because I want to see my friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. Even as a little kid, I remember driving, like taking a bus from Gush Katif um, to Ashkelon. I think I was in the sixth grade. Um, life there was fantastic. We had huge, huge spaces. We had dunes, we had trees, we had everything that we wanted. The childhood was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second intifada in 2000 started. Things started to be a little bit more complicated. My dad had a garage in Nevet Kalim, um, industrial area. And for time, he needed to actually use um, bulletproof vest mm-hmm. to protect himself when he was driving to work. Um, and that was the situation. Similar with COVID, you need to put a mask to protect you and protect the others. You do the same. You, you just, it becomes mundane. It's not, not, no, not, not, nothing bigger than that. So... That's basically the childhood. It was very, very normal. We were around 8,000... I think it's hard for people who don't remember the Second Intifada or weren't here during the Second Intifada to remember the keep calm and carry on attitude that Israelis had, whether in the territories or not. But it also does come at a psychological price, just like COVID, but if not, maybe more so. Yeah, in some ways, I can say that nowadays when we had like some bombing or whatever... I was very um, adish. Um, I forgot a word in English. Apathetic. Apathetic. Thank you. So, like, sure, that's a situation. I might go to a shelter place or I might not. Like, that's, I want to say, the price of being calm toward mm-hmm. terror attacks. But I, I feel like um, the reward is so much bigger, so it's actually better. 
Um, so Gush Katif was around 8,000 residents and we kind of know each other. I can vividly remember I will go, whichever issue, whichever community, and even if I didn't know them, they most likely knew my parents. Mm-hmm. So I felt safe in every community. That's something that was very, very unique to Gush Katif. We were a very strong community. I mean, 8,000 people, in, in t- even if it's 21 communities, it's not, it's not that many people. I live in Efrat, which has just Efrat, as one community has more people than all of Gush Katif has. And in, in Efrat, do you know each other? So it's getting, it used to be, you know, let's say 10 years ago, that if people said, oh, do you know so-and-so, you probably did. But today, it's big enough that it's, it's somewhere around 9,000, 10,000, the the connections stop making. So 8,000 is still that number, whether it's in the supermarket or your kids go to the same school or there's enough web of interconnection that you kind of, the families all know each other, even if every individual doesn't know every individual. So here where I disagree, I think um, Gush Etzion is a great uh, great example because there's a lot of similarities between Gush Katif and Gush Etzion. But where Gush Etzion, you don't necessarily know other people from different communities Correct. When we're talking about Efrat, it's Efrat. You live there, so you Nahon. most likely you're going to know. And I don't even know everybody in Efrat. Yeah, so we're talking about Gush Katif, 21 different right. yeshuvim, different communities. Some of them Orthodox, some of them um, secular, some of them go to schools in Ashkelon, some of them go to school in Etivot, some of them go to school in Gush Katif. It doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. the community was so strong, so supporting, the real sense of community. that we actually knew each other. Mm-hmm. And when people had an issue so many people would come to help. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a sense of um, why your parents chose to move to Gush Katif and live in Gush Katif? Oh, it's a really easy um, answer. Uh, so we are originally from Kibbutz Levi, near Tiberias. My uncle, my um, uncle Zichonor Vecha, um, moved there with his wife, my aunt. And then he told my dad, come. So my mom and dad decided, yeah, let's, let's try it out. So they moved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the most Zionism, Zionist um, story, mm-hmm. but I feel like that's, that's the thing about, about um, settling in different places. You don't need to think about that gender, that ideology. You just do it because mm-hmm. why not? It's a great place. There is an amazing beach. There's amazing nature around you. The community with the Arabs was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like we can't really imagine that nowadays. But like to our audience, I would explain that one of the stories that they usually um, bring up it's a story of a former resident from uh, the Bet Kalim named Shoshel Nekaveh, where for a son bar mitzvah she received received a sword from from the uh, from a, a neighbor from the village. She mm-hmm. asked him, why do you give me a sword? He asked, a sword is a symbol of peace between us. Mm-hmm. People learn how to drive in Khan Yunis. People went um, Friday um, shopping in Gaza market. Like, it's unbelievable nowadays, but like, that's how the community was. We coexisted in a un- yeah. It's hard for people to understand that that coexistence was uprooted by the quote-unquote peace process that was supposed to create integrity of the two communities, but it ended up dividing them into seeing each other as really different. I mean, it's an unintended consequence, obviously, but it's but it's one of the tragedies, I think. Yeah, but it, all, it started before. It started with the terror movement, with the Hamas, mm-hmm. let's sure. say. The Hamas started like 
drifting us apart. Mm. I know, um, I can tell a story. My dad had a garage and he had more than 20 um, Arab employees. Mm-hmm. One time, the story says that one of his employees didn't show up to work a few days and then he showed up all beat up. My dad asked him, what's up? He said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. My dad pushed him. Finally, he understood that Hamas or a different organization at the time tried to convince him to commit terror attack. And he said, no, he refuses. So they beat him up. Wow. That's how the strong relationship was. I want to emphasize that a lot of the Arabs that live there won us back. They had a fantastic relationship with us. We had a fantastic relationship with them. They literally built my parents' home. Mm-hmm. Like both communities received a lot from being neighbors. And are, are you in touch with any of them anymore? Is the family in touch with them? It's really, really hard because electricity in Gaza and Gaza Strip is <laughs> unreliable. Um, my dad, from time to time, get calls. Um, yeah, but we don't really know except that the situation there is terrible. Absolutely yeah. terrible. And I, I think that people, I, I know that my students very often have this narrative in their head because obviously they were too young. You know, I'm teaching, let's say, 18, 19 year olds. So they don't remember the disengagement. They, they think of it as part of the Oslo process that the Israeli government said, we'll give you Gush Katif and then you, Hamas, will be, make peace with us. They don't understand that it was after the failure of the Oslo process in, in, in 2005 in the, in the heat of the, of, the, of, the, of the second intifada that it was decided. And the idea was to really separate the communities that, that you know, almost 2 million Arabs isn't, it, ruling 2 million Arabs is, is, is a high price to pay so that 8,000 Jews can live in their communities. And Prime Minister Sharon said, you can't do it. Like we have to separate so that we can have a, a Jewish majority. It's a very confusing issue to our students who very often see things much more black and white. And it is, it was a very complicated decision. Yeah. And I think what's surprising about his decision that it was one of the great forces that pushed into the establishment of Gush Katif. I Sharon. think it was, yeah, For Sharon. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Sharon was Sarah Shikun at 77. All the territories, yeah. Yeah, so he literally signed so many things to actually yeah. provide Gush Katif the necessities of expanding. And then he changed his mind. And what's yeah. surprising about it, that the idea of establishment of Gush Katif and Yamit included, by the way, was yeah. a security plan. Was yeah. The, the five-finger plan was to divide the Arab community of becoming a massive one as today. Yeah. And then... They said, now it's not safe, but the establishment was to make the rest of Israel safer. So yeah. here where I confuse, and I wish I had the privilege of actually understanding his point of view, but sadly, I well, I think his Well, I think his point of view as a general was, you know, we had this plan, it didn't work, and now it's time for a strategic retreat. That plan clearly didn't work. That I think no one anti- says it did not work. No one ever said security-wise it did not work. They might say the prices were high. We lost yeah. a lot of soldiers. We lost a lot of lives. Sure, that's true. But no one says 
it is not, um, this is not uh, what we wanted. Because once we moved out, a few years later, yeah. exactly what everyone predicted happened. Rockets yeah. were yeah. shooting toward Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv. Right. Nowadays, they can shoot everywhere. It's exactly yeah. what every general predicted. So yeah. why, why, why did they uprooted us? Like, still, I don't really understand. Well, uh, to to give you, I think the to play the devil's advocate, I think the idea is that Saha, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces' mission of defending across the borders, of deterring enemies from outside of its boundaries from hurting us, is a much more sustainable mission than ruling over millions of Arabs to keep them quiet so that there'll be peace. And that ultimately, if you rule over them, ultimately at some point in the future, you're going to have to come to a decision of annexation and giving them citizenship, annexation and not giving them citizenship, or leaving the territory altogether. And I think the argument was, let's just cut to the chase. Let's just leave and separate our peoples. Because clearly, the anti-coexistence movement in the Palestinian world has been very successful. And so we have to stop trying to coexist and we have to separate. I think that was the... I want to add another yeah. layer to that, though, because in some ways you can say the same thing about places like Hebron and Kirat Arba and yeah. some places in the Shomron and, uh, and, you know, even Afra, arguably, even though it's a little yeah. different. But I, but I think, um, I think also there's the element here of, of Gush Katif being, um, being sort of like a trial, like be, try, trying something out to see maybe if it would work, even though a lot of people predicted it wouldn't and doing it in a place that wasn't, um, giving up an ancient Jewish site. So the, yeah. in my opinion, difference, or if I, as, as I see it, the difference between some place like Gush Katif and some place like. Uh, the diff the main difference is that there's no historical Jewish sites there. I mean, there are. I not, have to argue on that. I have to argue on that. On that, like it. historical uh, Jewish historical uh, sites. Um, first of all, some historian sees Grav, where Abraham was um, living, as mm -hmm. in Gush Katif area. So I think that's a very Jewishly historical site. Um, adding to that, the Great Shul of Aza. Right, there's like, an ancient center. Rabbi yeah. Shimon like the 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 the, um, the poet who wrote Yaribon Olam was from Gaza. Like we can't really say that um Aza wasn't an, a Jewish historical site. We have we have like um I don't know uh, I think I think Leah was saying, but it's not Hebron is is, is yeah. the issue. It's, 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 it's not Hebron, but it's it's not the same, but it's important almost or, as the or same. Or Rachel's tomb. Right. Kevin is a different argument. <laughs> no, but I'm saying if you draw a straight line between Hebron and Kevin Rachel and all of the settled Jewish settlements that are in between, that that there's there's more there than my argument is that there's more there than there would be in Gaza in terms of what we want to protect and what we want to keep in our hands. Oh, okay. That that, that I can understand. Yeah, and 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 and, and you know, and the, and the idea is we've had it open to settlement since the late 70s, early 80s, and 8,000 Israelis are there, which is not a huge Israeli number. It's, it's enough to build this beautiful place to raise wonderful... No, you need to understand that we're talking about 8,000 people. When we're talking about 8,000 people as the residents, like me as a kid was right. not counted as, re as a resident. Yeah. Okay? So um, we're talking about in 2005, 8,000 people in a place... 
let's say, um, we had plans of establishing new Yeshuvim to expand more. We had of course, a huge movement. So if we were there right now, I'm guessing we were around 15,000, even more. Probably. So, yeah. So the understanding of 8,000 people is a lot when we're talking about how, how, how the Yeshuvim were spread. How little they were. We had communities of 60 families and communities of 500 families. So mm-hmm. those can expand really, really fast. And and quite frankly, the, the, the growth in Yehudan Shemron in the West Bank has been, since 2005, if you, if you do a comp- comparison model, it would be much bigger. I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. But you were just saying you didn't understand the other side. And I, I do think that was the perspective from the other side. That you know that that you have you have half a million Jews in in the West Bank, and so if you if you made it to fifteen thousand in Aza, and it's 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 around two million Arabs in Aza. Yeah. So that I was that was also, the logic to protect to protect no, the Jews. I think the logic yeah. was also um, to try to copy what happened what ha- what happened in Yamit when we uprooted from Sinai Island, like. That was a so. peace treaty. I, I think that might be something on it. Like I don't think so. We moved out back- and yeah, there was no peace treaty. There was no good negotiation. But like I want, I want to believe that Ariel Sharon wants the greater good for for the people of Israel. So I have to find the logic of why. No, no, no but your your logic is is ahistorical. If you look at the if you look at what Sharon was saying at the time, he said clearly there is no path to peace. This is this is not to build. This is not Yamit. Yamit was, in order to have peace, we will do, we will take out this community. Uh, Gush Katif was since there can't be peace, we have to take out this community. Otherwise, we're going to be ruling two million people, and that that's a demographic a demographic threat to the future of the Jewish democracy of the state of Israel. And so we have to. Those eight thousand people are going to have to move. I, agree or disagree? That was the logic. Yeah, yeah. It was not. I think it was he explicitly. Also said- Nobody in 2005, yeah. nobody in 2005 was saying, you know, maybe this will change the, the atmosphere and the dynamic, and maybe the Palestinians in, in Gaza will look at us more positively. No, um, That's not fully true. Ariel Sharon said it a couple of times. He changed his mind a lot of times as we know it. But yeah, he did believe at the beginning, anyhow, that one side, one side um, going to move out, that can lead to a conversation. Okay. I also I, had I a lot remember, of, in terms yeah. of Israeli society. I had a lot of friends at the time who were um, very much pro the disengagement and and that they wholeheartedly believed that this was going to change everything. Yeah, I don't know anybody who who understood that. Di- listen, in 2005, there wasn't an Israeli who said goodbye to their family in the morning who was confident that by the time their kids got home at the end of the day, that they would all see each other. The second intifada, and, and, and even as it was being stopped and wound down, there was a pervasive sense in all Israeli society, which still exists today, that there is nobody on the other side to talk to. There are no serious leadership. There is no serious movement that seriously wants to live as two states by two sides. And therefore, this problem is un- intractable for at least another generation, if not more. That it was the prevailing Israeli attitude. And it is the prevailing Israeli attitude. And it's why the Israeli political left has not gotten off the floor, really, since 2005. So the fact that you knew people who said that, okay. 
I, 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 I don't believe Sharon believed it. It certainly doesn't fit Sharon's mental profile. Uh, yeah, and it but certainly doesn't his party and whatever happened after this engagement proved that they want negotiation, they want conversation, and they saw the one-sided uprooting. So does Netanyahu. Netanyahu, uh, of course, yeah, Netanyahu, Netanyahu always wants like, negotiation. He still says it today. Yeah, I understand, Netanyahu but Israeli leaders nowadays. always say they want negotiation. No, but like the agenda of and the uprooting was Omer, also it, uh, uh, also I for that. Think, I think you're. Uh, it, it makes no sense in real time. And it that's might how we not reflect. be making sense in 2005, but you need to understand that the program was exposed in 2003. By the time in 2003 till 2005, a lot changed, a lot, a lot changed in the, let's say, the society conversation, the political conversation, the defense conversation, in so yeah. many aspects. So by in 2005, he might said what he said, but to begin with, he did not say that. Right. I also just want to say, in terms of the society, I mean, there were, like, for the listeners who weren't here, who don't know, who weren't even born yet, the entire country was covered with blue and orange ribbons. And what that meant was that there was a huge, thousands and thousands of people who were pro- Explain the ribbons? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to explain it in a second. So we're yeah. pro-disengagement, and, and they were carrying blue ribbons, and these blue ribbons were yeah. on their cars, and they were on their backpacks, yeah. and they were on everything possible. And then people who were against the disengagement who went and walked around with orange ribbons orange. and who were against the disengagement, and again, they put it on their cars, we, they put it on their backpacks, and it was everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. And so in Israeli society, you can see it visually. You didn't even need to talk to anyone. But yeah. visually, you could see how the whole country was, 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 it, there was, there was a divide. There was a huge divide. And people who mm-hmm. really believed and were really pro this idea that this was going to bring the peace. Uh, if you're for disengagement, it doesn't mean you thought it would bring peace. The blue didn't mean this is what will lead to peace. I Even disagree if, with e- you. I strongly disagree okay. with you. With the conversation <laughs> I had with many, many activists in the left wing area. And of course, that's in the left wing area. Uh, I'm, I, the, the people who put the, the blue ribbon were from the left wing. They were active. The people, who, no, no, like, we, let's say a student a student body in the Hebrew University, the Hebrew University was at like a huge debate there. There was like the, let's say, the right wing um, student body. There was the left wing uh, student body. And both of them believed in their, in, in that. I understand. But Ariel Sharon was not from that wing. And Ariel Sharon represented a political coalition that agreed with him, but not with those people that you're describing. They wanted disengagement for a different set of reasons. And quite frankly, that coalition of that movement that you're talking about couldn't wield significant political power because Israelis had lost faith in them. And the majority of Israelis supported that disengagement. It was a complicated issue. The fact that it was supported... Don't do that political mistake that say because people agree on a policy, they all have the same agenda. No, but I think that's, I think that's saying that a large part of Israeli society who walked around with blue ribbons be- didn't believe that this was going to bring peace is a false statement. I, think I don't that know. They- I, don't, I don't know what the, dem- the, 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 the statistics were. I don't know of a poll of people with blue ribbons. Why are you doing it? But I can tell you that Ariel Sharon and his political people in leadership in the government didn't believe that. You, I, and I mean, the we can agree. Blue ribbons didn't vote for Ariel Sharon and his party. Nahon, BDU. That's my point. That's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. 
Yeah, but we can't really say that he was a right wing either because he basically lied to his voters as well. No, that just means he's a politician. He absolutely was right. No, no, I, I strongly disagree. He lied. That's okay. He lied. Of course, that's what all politicians do. No, no. You, okay, please name for me the politician who didn't. Ayala Chaked. Ayala Chaked. Okay. Yeah, and she's doing great in Israeli politics. Name the successful Israeli politician. By the way, I, I honestly do believe it's part of their job. I, I, I disagree with that. And, okay. and I think that might be just, you know, I don't know, many things. But like, at the end of it, Ariel Sharon lied to us. And that was unacceptable. That was why me as a personal... No, no, no stop, like, stop, 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 stop. I'm not convincing you to vote retroactively for Ariel I know, Sharon. I I'm not convincing you to support Ariel Sharon. But when you say, I don't understand, it makes no sense to me. And then, so, and then you get the explanation and then you say, well, I don't like that explanation because he lied. I don't accept that ex explanation because he lied. Well, then, then you have to decide. Do you want to understand? Heard, and still disagree. Still disagree. A different explanation but, that Leal and I disagree with you on the idea of that was for, for peace. And we both... Yeah, if you believe... Yeah, that's true. You and Leal can believe... So I think we have to make a separation between there is the government and the government's decisions and Israeli society and Israeli society's the repercussions and the effects that, that it all had on Israeli society. And what I was saying was that the left maybe didn't vote for the government, but agreed with the government's decision at the time. And the right did vote for that government, probably likely, but didn't agree with that government's decision. And, and, and I, what we're talking about is the ripple effect that it had amongst Israeli society and the, the blue and the orange that we're talking about, the ribbons. Um, and then, you know, a separate entity was the government in terms of why they did it and what they believe, what they did, their reasons. But the, in terms of the ripple effect that I think we're talking about, uh, you and I are talking about in terms of being young, at least I, this is what I felt, being young people or being teenagers really in that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And really not knowing what to do because having a lot of people who are very blue, who are very right. pro-disengagement right. in, my, in my environment, in my life, and believing strongly that this was the way that they were going to bring peace or peace was going to come. And then the other hand, Understand. You were living in Orange yeah, Land. Yeah, and I was living in Orange Land. I yeah. was going to school in Blue Land. I was living in Orange Land. So. I think you need to explain what that means. <laughs> I was. I grew up in Efrat, and so I grew up in in Judea and Samaria on the West Bank. And so the people that I was living with um, were against. very much uh, yeah. against this, and because we, we kind of come from the same fold, and we were like we were talking about before. Um, so we saw we saw kinship with Gush Katif. Gush Katif sure. saw kinship with Gush Katif, and in school. Um, I went to school with a lot of people who were very left wing and, and very anti um, anti settlements in general. And so they were very pro the disengagement from Gaza. And probably also if there was going to be a disengagement from Gush Katif, they would also probably mm -hmm. be for that as well. So I heard it from both. No, both and I think ends. I think you you that separation is is exactly the clarity that we didn't have. I, I, it, it, it doesn't it. It means that at the government level, you had a government voted for people who were the orange against it, implementing the policy that the blue who didn't vote for them. And, 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 and the fact that you find that a conundrum is because the only explanation that you're seeing for it is that somehow the minds of the people from the right switched to lefty. 
But I don't think that's what happened. I think he literally changed his mind. And so the promises that he made were based on, Uvdot Bashetach is a classic military paradigm, which is I have to make my decision based on the facts that exist on the ground. And if my ideological decision led me in a certain direction, the facts on the ground now have led me to change my mind. And I, as the commander, am calling a different approach. And it was the approach that the left had proposed for a reason that, that, that Sharon didn't agree with. But he said, but ultimately, I agree with their policy decision for a di- very different set of reasons. And, the, and that the right felt betrayed because they said, we voted for you for a particular policy. And, and he felt, but I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And, and it would take a lot longer time than we have to convince me that Ariel Sharon suddenly became a peacenik who thought if only, you know, we and the Palestinians, if we leave God, I, I, don't, I don't believe that for a second. And, and it, you, if you find me a statement that he said that, I'll just say he was just lying like politicians do. Like BB always says he's for a two-state solution, and we know he's lying. They all that, that's that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do. They can't do their job right. if they don't lie. They have to say the thing that people need to hear. They do. I might be naive, but and I let, don't believe the that. only way it works is if you're Hamas and you have absolute control. And you, and you get to say whatever you want, and people have to suck it up. In a democracy, you have to be diplomatic. And diplomacy isn't the language of saying things. Diplomats can't be so sabra. They can't be so Israeli. They have to say there, things in a way There is that, a difference between being diplomatic and lying. No, there isn't. There is a big difference. And I think that's where we disagree. FDR, Woodrow Wilson told the American people he wouldn't lead them into World War One. FDR indicated to the American people that he wouldn't lead them into World War Two. Both presidents knew that's exactly where they were going. That's their job. Again, I think we disagree and I don't think yeah, this yeah, yeah. is the topic right now, but like that's a different conversation that Michael yeah, yeah, yeah. would love to do. But I do, I do think in a democracy yeah. you have to, you have to be very careful giving people bad news. Look, I can tell you as an educator, look at somebody like Jabotinsky, who always told what he thought and was rejected by the majority of the people, not not disrespected, but he said things too harshly to listen to. And other Jewish leaders who would be more accepted and were more successful politically, because they tell people what they want to hear, and and how how successful yeah. politicians do that without lying, I don't know. I think some do it better than others. I think one of the most remarkably successful people at it, much more than Ayala Shaked, and, and, and was much more successful in the long run, was Menachem Begin, who was brutally honest yeah. and somehow managed to be successful at a certain place yeah. and, 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 and certain time after 30 years in the wilderness, Yeah. after 30 years of not having power. But I think to me, he's the exception that proves the rule. But again, also, yeah, yeah, he is he's exceptional. exceptional. I, I agree. Yeah. On that, I agree with you. I think he's yeah. an exceptional um, leader that we should all. Oh, in some for. things. Okay. On the other hand, he was not a terribly successful prime minister and yeah. his career didn't end well. And he, he turned on Ariel Sharon and, and, and threw him out. I mean, a very. Every, yeah, being, being a good leader doesn't mean you, you are a good yeah. director. Like yeah. there's a different aspect. Correct. Correct. Um, Correct. So it is very complicated. So I, I try not to, whatever Sharon's strengths or failings, I, I don't think he was a, a, a good leader. I think he was a strong director, whether right or wrong. I think that's, I think he was a general to the end. Yeah. He, he functioned like a general. And when, and when, you know, in 73, when they said, be careful where you go with the tanks and he rode right up to Cairo he he when he was he was very he was a really israeli general as we say 
Ariel Sharon is a bulldozer. Yeah. Like, he's, yeah. he's a good bulldozer. Yeah. Why well, do you agree with him? There is the other side <laughs> of the bulldozer. When I disagree with him, that's right. he's still going to go full. That's right. That's, that's how he walks. Yeah. Uh, and sadly, I was on the other side of the bulldozer. That's right. You got <laughs> literally. bulldozed. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah. yeah, literally. Um, yeah. But but again, whether whether and I, I don't think anybody argues anymore that 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 that, that Gaza can be. And I mean, I mean, the the, the to me, the, maybe crime is too strong a word, but the, the biggest. I don't want to say failure because it's too weak a word, was that those rockets came not long after and the government took way too long to stop them. If you're willing, yeah. to, if you're willing to take that price of, of removing that safety barrier, then those rockets are inevitable and you have to that deter them. That was one of the biggest... Yeah. Sorry. That no. was one of the biggest frustration that I felt yeah. personally. Like, we moved to Nitsan. Right. Uh, we live in a temporary housing, um, a caravan, a caravilla. Okay. Uh, and then there were bombing. Uh, a trailer, we were like, a trailer, like a trailer. A trailer, home. basically yeah. a trailer made from drywall. Yeah. Um, really, really not shelter at all. And right. we were like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. yeah we yeah. moved out. We were falsely moved out. And now we are unsafe again. Yeah. So hear that. What the government did to protect us, they brought cement um, pipes. Yeah. Meaning for like, a sewage yeah. to protect us. So we, we needed to, to run get into, out of our home yeah. in the middle of the night to what we call BUVIT. Concrete sewage be, pipes, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So this is ridiculous. Think about it. You were falsely out and then you are unsafe again. So for what? I don't think that's, that's what we felt at that time. You can tell that I always like to look at things from both sides. I don't think there's another side to that. I think that's an absolute... That's the most basic responsibility of a government is to provide for the basic f- functioning welfare of its citizens. And, and citizens who sacrifice so much and are in so much pain have to be put to the front of the line. And I, I, I honestly don't think there's a... I, the aftermath of the disengagement, I don't think is defensible by anybody. I, I really don't. I don't, think mm-hmm. this is, I don't think there's another hand. It's partially why I give you so much credit, Yoav, spending so much of your time and your energy getting this out. I, I imagine it must be somewhat psychologically helpful to, 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 to try to get positive from it. But on the other hand, it means you're carrying your burden very upfront all the time. I'm sure a lot of people just want to move on with their life. So I can't move on. It's part of yeah. who I am. Yeah. It's part of my identity. It's part of my past. So I decided to do what I can. I take my personal experiences. I take the information, I get my education that I've been studying for many years now, and I'm pushing it to give it to whoever wants to hear. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually directing you now to educators. If you want to have sessions about Gush Katif, if you want to have session about something that is not easy to talk about, yeah. reach out. We have resources. We have we, I can come, and I, that's what I want. That's what we want as Gush Katif Heritage Center. Yeah. We want to memorate the good, the bad, and the complicated. Yeah, you're exactly. I mean, I, I'm not saying this just to flatter you. I'm saying this so the listeners appreciate it. You're exactly who who should be. I mean, because in my opinion, and this is biased because I'm an educator, because you're approaching it as an <laughs> educator. No, you're not trying to indoctrinate. 
You're saying to be a healthy society, we have to educate and we have to have open conversations and we have to explore these issues, not with 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 passion, but also with love. And 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 that's the only way you can build a family is when you have you sit around the table and you hash it out, and at the end, that's when you you really hug and you really know you love each other because you you you're able to talk through disagreements. So and honestly, one of the greatest days of any sessions that I led was the dis- disagreement. Yeah. Because the disagreement led to a true conversation. Yeah. And I can, I can with this coworker um, that Liel knows, I strongly disagree politically. But the conversation was meaningful because I want to understand their agenda. Well, I, I would and even say, it. I would say further, if we don't, the people I don't have, that conversation, let's say I disagree with X. If I don't have a conversation with X about it, it means I don't care about X. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. I don't need to, to exchange opinions with them because I've, I've, in my head, I've made them not worth my time. And we're all worth each other's time. And we're all one people exactly. and we have to have these conversations. And I, I can't thank you enough for taking time with us today, Yoav. And, I, and I'm going to, I don't say this at the end of most episodes. I'm going to ask our listeners to pass this around to friends because I think understanding all sides of it, but at the center, the human story of of people losing their home. It, it can't just be a political conversation. It has to be about whatever decisions leaders make. There are people on the ground paying real, real, real life prices. And we can never take that out of our... And whether you're talking about COVID or you're talking about... You know, we had a, we had a tour guide on a, a, a few episodes ago talking about exactly this, that, that whatever policy decision you make, there's real life people. Agree or disagree, but we have to be, and this, you know, Allah you know, how much more so when we're talking about people's homes. So, you know, I I, I honestly don't think I could do what you do. I don't. I really don't. I I, I have so much respect for, you know, you're saying that's who you are, but uh, but really it takes a lot of guts and it takes a lot of love for your nation and your people to do what you do. And I, I really appreciate it and in general, but also specifically for taking your time with us today. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really, really happy you invited me. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I really am. I'm happy we did. So thank you. Thank you, Liel. Thank you. And Thanks so much, Yav. Well, we don't have to turn off the Zoom. We're going to stop recording because it is the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the State of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.